Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn, yes, you guessed it, back to Proverbs chapter 26. And, uh, you know, last week we looked at two verses. We looked at Proverbs chapter 26, verses uh, 11 and 12. And it was one of the probably the most graphic verses in the Bible, but yet at the same time, uh, it's a great example of why uh, men and women keep returning to uh, their sin. And, of course, the verse was based on the fact that a dog returning to his vomit. And uh, we laid it all out and talked about it. And we, you know, we, we saw the two examples that he uses for unsaved men and unsaved women. And, of course, in Proverbs chapter 26, and, and then uh, he talks about the dog being an unsaved man. And in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22, he talks about the unsaved woman being likened to a sow. Uh, and then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, you find both of them, the dog and the sow, in the, uh, in the same verse there. And, uh, and I told you last week as we kind of laid it out that these are, without a doubt, two of the most filthy animals on the planet uh, with some terrible habits. And, uh, you know, uh, we went through that and we looked at it. And, you know, in the book of Job, chapter 12, verse 7, there is a, there's a great verse. <clears throat> and it says, But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. And he tells us in the book of Job that the animals in the Bible will teach us something. We can learn something from them. And without a doubt, that verse is one of the great keys that leads to so many different other things in the Bible when you see all the animals that are found in the Word of God and the fact that there's something that we can learn from them. You know, animals in the Bible, uh, you know, the, the ass and the donkey and the dog and the pig and the bulls and eagles and owls and the cormorant and the, and the dove and the raven, all in the Bible will have a study connected to them and, and many more that will uh, open up and show you some great things about the Bible. And God uses that in the form of association to kind of teach us and, and lay out for us. You know, we learn from them. And then we apply what we learn and what they give us, and then first to ourselves, and then, of course, to uh, life in, in general. And we, we saw in verse 12, uh, I talked about a man wise in his own conceit. And, you know, uh, and, and then it says that he's worse than a fool. And, and just so, I don't know how far some of you want to take these things, but I always like to give you the, the ability to... Uh, develop it. You're going to find in the Bible there are six areas where uh, the Bible talks about that a man will be conceited uh, in his own wisdom. And uh, it's a great study in itself. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 5, it talks about a, a fool in his folly. So there's one way to look at it. Proverbs 26, 12, we saw this last week, uh, how an unsaved man will keep coming back to his sin. And then in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 16, we see that he talks about the sluggard. In Proverbs 28, verse 11, he talks about a rich man being wise in their own conceits. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, it talks about uh, modern-day men or women, but mostly men, who will actually take a stand today in the church age against the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, and that how that they are wise in their own conceits. Uh, not knowing that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel shall be saved. They're, they're oblivious to that. 
in uh, the sixth one found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And uh, that is a, a man who rejects or does not want or will not put the gifts of God in his life that God wants to give him uh, after, after he gets saved. So that's a great study in itself that you can look at that and put that in your Bible if you so desire. And, uh, and I told you last week that the, the, the overall context of that verse last week was dealing with false religious leaders, false prophets. Uh, when you get into 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it tells you very clearly uh, that about the false prophets and the false teachers, and it likens them. So in the context, of, uh, as we find it in Proverbs and then we find it in 2 Peter, uh, it's talking about religious leaders, false teachers, or really anybody who teaches against the clear, established truth of, of, of the Word of God. And there again is the key. We've been talking about this a lot the last couple of weeks. It comes down to the established truth of, of the Word of God. Thursday night was a great uh, Bible study uh, in many aspects, but one of the things that I uh, enjoyed was First Samuel chapter 3, where we got to look at how God brings a young man or a young lady and develops them to be everything that God wants them to be. And we saw the three areas. And then in Bible Institute the next morning, we just happened to be going through the seven stages of spiritual growth. And I tied it all in uh, in a way that we probably have never looked at the seven stages of spiritual growth before and, and put it all together for you. But we talked about how that Samuel grew and then how that the word of the Lord, uh, he, none of the words fall to the ground. And then how God established him. And through that, then God revealed himself to him of what he wanted him to do. Just an incredible, incredible uh, thing to go through and to look at. And today, we're going to look at one more verse. We're going to move on through verse 13 here. And you'll remember that so far, we have seen 11 direct references to a fool. And now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about a man who the Bible calls a sluggard or a slothful. And uh, we will find now in this little section, we won't get through it all today, we'll find four direct references to that. And then all this is broken down for you by God so you can see and understand it. Now, we'll go through it over the next couple of weeks. Now, I told you Thursday night, I told you yesterday in Institute, and uh, I'm telling you again right now, this is going to be a little different than normally uh, your... Sunday morning service that you go to. We take the Bible real serious around here. And when there's an opportunity that presents itself like it does today, I would be do a great injustice if we didn't just clear off a spot and look at what God has for us. I told the people Thursday night that we have many people that are on higher levels of really getting into the Bible. And I told you Thursday night that this would be a key study for you to be able to really add some things to what you already are working through through the Bible. I also told him in Bible Institute yesterday, look at this as a Bible Institute extension. Uh, I'll just carry it over. Into, so there's going to be so much here today out of this one little verse that when you read it, you wouldn't even be able to think that it would go anywhere. But we'll see as we come on through it. Now, our verse today uh, is a simple one. Uh, but it carries with it a megaton of truth that lies just underneath the surface. So let's look at verse 13. Let's get into it here. And uh, 
we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. It says, the slothful man saith, there is a lion in the way. A lion is in the street. Gene Geisinger, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the uh, time this morning in the Bible? Now, you know, when you look at this verse by itself, it, it really, it, it would be hard to get really any depth out of it. And, and I teach you all the time that the first thing you want to do about any verse, anywhere you find in the Bible, or anything you, 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 you're looking at, you want to establish the context. The context will take that verse, as this one here, and put it in the whole theater of operations of the chapter that we're looking at, especially what we've looked at so far. So far, And this verse will begin to be understood, and it'll come to light when we actually put it into the context of false teachers and false prophets. And here's our first reference to a slothful man. Up to this point, we've seen the men that are wise in their own conceit. We've seen the fools uh, in their folly. We've seen all of these things. And we all know now that it's dealing with people who wrongly teach the Bible, get an attitude in their heart of conceit that nobody's going to teach them anything, and then, you know, and then go from there. And that's where the problem comes in. Now, we know now from the Bible, and there's a lot of things here that we can begin to show you how you build this. Uh, we know from the Bible that uh, this, who this lion is. There's two lions in the Bible. One of them is Jesus Christ. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5. 5. And the other one is the devil. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, this is a great truth about false teachers, the sluggard and the slothful when it comes to the Bible. Uh, you'll find that all of the false teachers out there, and, and, and please, you've got to know that the devil didn't miss the trick to have a false church, false teachings, or false religions. And, uh, you know, none of us, in our right minds would go out to the airport wearing a skimpy little robe with tinkerbells on our fingers and tambourines and stand out there. You know that is not for you. Okay, I get that. We need to narrow it down a little bit more now. There's a lot of people out there that teach the Bible wrong. The devil didn't miss a trick when it came to false religion. In fact, you'll see here before we're done today that that is his main sphere. Most people think that the devil was out late last night, Saturday night, and with the, with the drunk crowd and the booze crowd and the drug crowd and the carousing crowd and the crowd that's out there uh, doing all kinds of things on Saturday night that people out on Saturday night do. Uh, and, and that's where they think he's at. I got news for you. He, he, he wasn't anywhere around there last night. No, no. The devil got home early last night and got to bed because he didn't want to miss church this morning. And where you're so stupid, not you, but you're so stupid that you stayed out half the night last night and then could drag yourself to church, he's smarter than that. He wants to be in church today. And he is all across this city, all across this country, all across the world. 
He wouldn't miss it. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, other than Scott and Aaron. We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I'm going to be throwing this in all day today. I'll have, I'll, by the time I'm done, I will switch text and I'll be talking about David and Goliath before we're done. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the the scribes and the Pharisees, who we'll talk about here in a little bit, they were religious phonies. And they loved, they weren't down in the darker, seedier parts of Jerusalem. No, no. Bible says they loved the high seats in the synagogue. The devil's, listen to me, the devil's main sphere is going to be religion. It's just the way it's going to be. And, you know, people just get blinded to that aspect. And, you know, the idea is, well, we're all trying to get to the same place. Well, no, we're not. We're all, we're all trying to get to heaven. There's just a lot of different roads. No, there's not. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He says, narrow is the way into eternal life, but broad is the way to destruction. The Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but their end thereof is the ways of death. Now, what don't you get about that? But that's where we're at today. And the devil has done a great job. I, I got to hand it to him. Now, the great truth about false teachers is the fact that they will admit there is a devil. But they'll never talk about him. Uh, you'll never, you'll never. The Jehovah Witnesses, they're not going to say a thing about him. I mean, the Mormons, they're not going to talk about him. They, they all understand in a general sense that there is a force out there which people call the devil. Some people believe that it's a, just a spirit. They don't believe it's a real person. Other people believe that the Bible says that it's a real person. But you find that these, these false teachers, they don't, they don't ever really talk about it much. Kinfolk, you know, they're all together in this thing. And he's saying here that there's a lion, which we now know is the devil, that is in the way and he's in the street. And they'll say, well, yeah, there's a, in a general sense, they'll, but, but I want to tell you something. Back in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, The Bible talks about the strange woman. And we know that that strange woman from Proverbs 7 and also Proverbs 5 is false religion. It's typified in the Bible by Jezebel. And it's a a false religious woman, Jezebel, who is a picture of false religion. And in Proverbs chapter 7, there's a great little story there of how that she is dressed in the attire of a harlot. Because she wants the world to commit spiritual fornication against God with a false religion. That's what Israel did. So, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, as it lays out this woman, she paints her face, she gets all prettied up, and she goes out in the twilight and the evening and the dark night. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, and we're going to put this into some kind of practical application, we know that that's a picture of the church age. We're in the nighttime, and when Jesus comes back, it's like into the sun coming up in the morning. And yet the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 7 that this woman, this harlot, 
who wants to seduce this young guy with her false religious ways, she's on a street, on a corner of a street. Hey, there is more information on the devil in the Bible than any other man outside the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the false teachers <clears throat> will talk about him in a general sense, but will never lay him out as to what street he's on and the way that he operates. I could walk, drive down any street in town with you, <clears throat> and you name it, <clears throat> and I can show you where he's at on the street. And I certainly could open up the Bible, and show, which I'm going to do, and show you his way. And I could go through Kansas City, I could go through Raytown, Washington, D.C., it'd be easy there, Minneapolis, Lincoln, Nebraska, Wichita, any city, and point out to you where he's at on the street and show you his way. And he doesn't want us to do that. We get criticized all the time. Because we won't accept the new translations of the Bible. Most people that would try to get into that argument really don't understand uh, the issues. And the reason why we don't, and you're going to see here in just a moment, and I'm not mad at anybody that does. Hey, we've had people come into this church... that had another Bible other than the King James 6, 10, 11 authorized version. Now, there are some Baptist churches around that would ask you to leave, probably after they take the offering, but they would ask you to leave. <laughs> I would tell you, you stay with what you got till God shows you what you need to see. I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. I'm just not going to do that. I learned a long time ago, if I just preach the truth and you really want the truth, God will take care of the rest with you. You don't need me in there. And so, you know, but all the new Bibles, and you're going to see this in just a moment, all the new Bibles do one thing. They hide the street and the way. Because all the new Bibles will destroy all the cross. I'm going to show you in a second. I'm not going to ask you to take my word for it. But I want you to leave here today knowing what street he's on, this lion, and the way that he is. And all these new Bibles will destroy all the cross-references of the Bible. Now, maybe you're somebody that you don't really intend to get deep into the Bible. Maybe you just want to, maybe your greatest blessing in life is that little daily bread pamphlet that they pass out. And, And that's where you want to stay. I'm okay with that. I really am. I really am. I I want you to be happy wherever you're at, if that's where you're at. But I found in our church and the people that I draw are usually people who want a deeper understanding in the Word of God than just, you know, uh, your daily bread type of mentality. And you're going to find that in all of the new Bibles, it completely destroys all the cross-references of who the devil is and only gives you a general idea about him. And I want you to know that this is by design. And uh, all of them will do two things. They'll mask the street and the way that he operates. And every one of them will deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they'll take 
the honor and glory that your Bible gives to God and try to give it to the devil. Now, I know that sounds really hard. And most people would say, oh, I just, where's he? Okay, just, just bear with me. Just, you know, just chill, chill out. Take a chill pill. Hang on. Here we go. I'm not going to spend all morning. I'm going to give you two examples. And obviously, if this two is enough, you're brain dead. Now, let me start by saying this. In Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, you have the two great chapters concerning the devil and his fall. We know that one time he was the anointed cherub that covered God's throne way back in the day. He had a rebellious heart. He wanted to overthrow God because he wanted to become God. And we know that that's how this whole thing got into the mess that we're in today. Now, in your King James Bible, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it talks about the devil. Now he's called Lucifer. He's not called the devil yet, but you know that he's one and the same. He's called Lucifer before the fall, <clears throat> then he's called the devil, and we'll look at some other names after the fall. But here's what it says in verse 12 in your King James Bible. How art thou fallen <clears throat> from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now, he's called there the son of the morning, which is his rightful title if you understand how he plays into God's God. Now, in your NIV, verse 12 reads like this. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? They take out son of the morning and put in calling him the morning star. Now, you don't have to be a Bible theologian to realize that the morning star in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Revelation 2, 28, Revelation 22, 16 is a reference to Christ. Christ is the morning star. Here's a place in the new Bible where they take the title given to Christ as the morning star and give it to the devil. And people are okay with that. I mean, it's just that simple. And you've got pastors and Sunday school teachers and Bible college professors, uh, all, you know, it, 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 it's, and they'll all tell you, it is the, very, the NIV is the best. And they'd be right. It's the best the devil has. Now, not only is that bad enough, but in your NIV, in the footnote, down at the bottom, for you serious Bible students, the footnote says that this guy is not the devil and it's Christ. And the greatest two chapters in the Old Testament of where Satan fell and where he came from. Now, if that was not enough, I'm only going to give you two. If that was not enough, turn over to Luke chapter 11. Now, in Luke chapter 11, you have one of the accounts in the Gospels of what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm not ever why, know why, and it's been called that forever. I'm not sure why it's called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord never prayed it. He gave it to the disciples. If you want to be exact, it should be the disciples' prayer, but that's okay. Now, in your King James Bible, here's what it says. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven, so in earth. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that is the standard rendition that you get in your King James Bible that uh, for whatever reason, every time somebody is going to die, get shot, go to the electric chair, get killed, they say the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer will not help you at all. The Lord's Prayer is a kingdom prayer, but I'm not going to get into that today. Now let's take that same prayer in NIV. Here it comes. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Now, there's 20 words missing, left out. When you would compare an NIV to a King James Bible, there's over 60,000 different changes that's left out or changed. Here's, here's, here's 20 of them. Now, I got to say this too. I'll just tell you. This shows up in your NIV Bible. I'm just going to tell you right now. There is no, listen to me, there is no Greek manuscript on the face of the planet, planet Earth. There's not on Mars. There's not on Venus. There's not on Jupiter. Well, I'm not sure about Jupiter. There's not about Saturn. Anywhere in the known universe, there isn't one Greek manuscript that has that reading in it. So how did it get in your NIV? Where did it come from? I'll tell you. It's found in the book called Dogma and Ritual of High Black Magic. In the book, it says that it's a prayer to pray to Lucifer as God. Now, how in the world did it get into your NIV? But that is a question. Back in 1875, there was an occultist named Madame Blavatsky. She was the forerunner of the, of, of the uh, New Age movement way back in the day. And this was part of the prayer in her cult practice. And this goes back to Macon the heretic. This goes back to Constantine allowing it in to appease the pagans when they come in in 325 A.D. And here it is in your Bible in churches today that guys are preaching out of when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, you don't have the one that God gave them. You got the one that's in the devil's manuscripts of the book on the high practice of black magic that they pray to the devil to be God. And you're okay with that. Say, how did that happen? It's easy. Why shouldn't the devil's Bible have a prayer to him? I get it. Now, maybe, and I'm not talking to any of you, but maybe, just maybe, at this point in time, we should just stop and forget this and, and stop here and look at the depth of your stupidity. How you can see two things like that that you can't argue with, and yet you have a pastor, you have that Bible in your church, he's standing up this morning, and in every Bible college in this country, and across there's Bible teachers that are ridiculing you because you've got the book that honors God and holding up the Bible that dethrones him and puts the devil on the throne. I mean, come on, you've got the mental range of a windshield wiper. I can't even get to that point where you can even see that. Listen, the guys who put out that stuff have no idea what street he's on and the way he is. 
I've read Philip Schaff's book. I've got a five-volume, working on a five-volume on church history. We've got tapes on it. We've done all the way back to 1988. I read every book on church history there was. I went through Philip Schaff's book, eight volumes on church history, which is the standard today. Philip Schaff writes eight volumes on church history like he thinks the devil died someplace in the process. I've read Newell's book, two volumes. They don't mention, when's the last time in any Bible college or any book you found a chapter or a class on somebody teaching the devil's work in history to destroy the Bible? And I'm telling you what, man, this, this, it's absolutely unbelievable. The devil's Bible put out by the devil's church, vomited every day by the devil's pastors. Or good men who are saved, but are just so inept when it comes that they buy into that stuff. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. In the front of your King James Bible, this is why we only use the Oxfords or the Cambridges. We don't get into the American uh, King James Bible. In the front of your, if somebody, if I didn't know the King James Bible was the word of God any other way, if I didn't have one shredded evidence, I know that it was God's established truth because in the front of your Bible, you got what is called a dedicatory. That dedicatory was written by the translators. And that dedicatory explains to anybody before you open up a King James Bible and study it, what those guys had in mind, what their intent was, and what they wanted to accomplish. And in that dedicatory, it says they wrote this Bible to take a stand against two bodies of people. One was the Roman Catholic Church, whom they call popish persons, and link him to the Antichrist. And the other one, you might guess, is conceited brethren. In their day, that would be the Calvinist. Only Bible in the world that has that. If I didn't know it was God's word any other way, I'd know it was because before you ever crack it, the men that wrote it told you what they were taking a stand against false teaching and false religion. You can't find anybody to stand against anything today. Now, in your Bible, in the Old Testament, you're going to find two chapters. You want to know his way? You want to know what street he's on? Okay, I'll give it to you. Now, let me just say this. Sooner or later, at some point in your life, you're going to have to study the devil. Most of you have been studying him very well, but the wrong way. You're going to have to open up your Bible and get it down because there's a lot of bad teaching out there. Now, the easiest thing, and I've told you before, we talked about it Thursday night, three is the number of completion in your Bible. And everything runs along that line. So when it comes to the Bible, you're going to find that the Bible is kicked out of heaven three times. Once you get this little outline down, then everything you're going to study about him is going to go in number, door number one, door number two, or door number three. And the first time he's kicked out will be Genesis chapter 1-1 to Genesis chapter 1-2. And this is where he's kicked out positionally. He loses now his status as the covering cherub. And then he runs the course from Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 
all the way up to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, all up through the Old Testament, all up through the New Testament. And then in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, the Bible says he kicked out of heaven bodily. And it also tells you that during this time, he is called the accuser of the brethren. And now he's kicked out bodily. And in chapter 12, he's kicked out. And in chapter 13, he gets kicked out in 12 out of heaven. He comes down in chapter 13. He's now on the earth as the Antichrist, right in the middle of the tribulation period. And then we know that he runs the course of seven years of the tribulation. And then in Revelation chapter 19, you have the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, he's kicked out the third time. And now he's kicked out eternally. And he's put it in the lake of fire. And in your Bible, in the Old Testament, you have Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. Without a doubt, the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the devil. If you want to know his way and you want to know what street he's on, this is where you start. Now, chapter 40 talks about a composite beast, which we know as the behemoth. And the behemoth means composite. And we have now a beast that is made up of multi-beast. And believe it or not, when you study it all out, and we don't have time to get through it, in chapter 40, you will find that it's talking about the Antichrist. Now, scholarship, God bless them. Scholarship and the great minds that teach you the Bible will read the same chapter that I just gave you. And they'll come up with the idea that behemoth in the notes and what they'll teach you was an elephant. Because they have forsook the word of God. The devil has masked his way and masked his street. So they're left to looking at this most incredible passage in the Old Testament. And all they can get out of it is an elephant. They miss the reference in verse 15 that says he's connected to an ox, which connects him to the fifth cherub. They miss the connection in verse 19 that he says that he is the chief of all the ways of God. That is some elephant you got. Verse 18 says that his bones are made of brass and iron. There's two of the greatest keys anywhere in the Bible. And verse 23 says that he, he drinketh up Jordan. That's Revelation chapter 12, 13 in the tribulation period where that's exactly what he does. How in the world do you read that chapter and not see the connection to the Antichrist? And come away with, how many degrees do you got? You come away thinking that the greatest chapter on the Antichrist in the Old Testament is an elephant. But then we come into chapter 41. And in chapter 41, now we have another beast, and it's called Leviathan. And where 40 is the Antichrist, chapter 41 is the devil himself. And you'll find this in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. Now here again, thank God for scholarship. You're studying your Bible and you get into this passage, which would be a confusing passage if you didn't have a little bit of Bible knowledge. And so what do you do? You run to your your, your educated guys who uh, you trust and you think are going to give you that, and, and uh, you just read 40, and now you know that that's an elephant, and then you come down here in 41, and now they tell you that 
it's this Leviathan scholarship will tell you that it's a whale or a whirlpool. Well, come on, which is it? Do you know there is a difference between a whale and a whirlpool? I mean, I, I can draw it for you on the board, doctor, if you need me to. I mean, you ought to know what a whirlpool is every time you flush the toilet. And you ought to know what a whale is because I'm sure as you grow up, your daddy read your Moby Dick. I mean, a whale is a big fish. A whirlpool is not a big fish. It's a swirling whirl of water that pulls you down, so it's called a whirlpool. A pool of water that whirling that will pull you down. And I, I never got out of the sixth grade. And they'll say it's a whale or a whoopal. When I come down through here in verse, thir- verse 3, it says that this whale or whoopal will speak soft words to you. It says he'll be, make supplications to you. Now, I, I, I know that whales make noises. You can hear them on sonar and all that stuff out there in the ocean when they're doing their whale deals. But I'm telling you right now, I just, I've never had a whale that in my mind ever spoke soft words to me. But I know somebody who does. I know somebody that said one time with the most holiest, most beautiful, most extending, most, most bravado voice, yet it was so quiet and so serene that you just wanted to listen to every word that said one time in a very soft way, yea, hath God said. Now, Job chapter 41, the greatest chapter on the devil, verse 13 says this. It says, who can discover the face of his garment? Now, we're going to talk about the street and the way here. And that'll be the street that he's on. And before we're done, we're not only going to have the name of the street and the address, we're going to have his phone number. Job chapter 41, verse 12 says, God says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Now, that's his way. See, for us in the Bible, it's not just a general sense, oh, there's a lion in the street, oh, yeah, there's a lion in the way. No, 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 no. That lion is somebody specific. That street is a specific street, and that way is someplace you better find out. And the real question is, what way, what street? Of course, I mean, if it's a whale in a whirlpool, then, you know, I guess you got to wait till the sewers back up when you get a heavy rain. I guess if it's a if it's a if it's an elephant, you got to go to the Kansas City Zoo and figure it out. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. This book, this book lays him out, and he hates it. Now you want his address in his street? Okay. God says he'll give us that. He said in forty one twelve, I will not conceal his parts. What is that? I will not conceal his power. What is that? Nor his comely proportion. What is that? You see, when it says God's telling you when it comes to the devil, I'm not going to conceal his parts. You know what the parts are? The parts are the men down through history that he has used to bring about his plan opposite to God's plan. 
When it says, I will cannot show his power, that's the nations. The nations that he has used. That men run, that he has, he has used all down through history. And when it says comely proportion, that's his religious. That's his church down through history. That is him running the world through men, dominating the world through nations, and pulling it all together through a false religion. Now, how come you didn't see that, doctor? I'll tell you why, because you're wise in your own conceits, and when it comes to studying the Bible, you're slothful and you're a sluggard. He says in verse 13, draw your attention back to that again. Who can disguise the face of his garment? I always thought that was a strange verse until I got a little farther into church history and my Bible and history itself, because you can't separate the two. And then I realized one day that down through history, when you look at history, history is basically divided up. And and here's all history. Here's all history from a Bible standpoint. Forget what you learned in school. Well, don't forget what you learned in school, but here's real history. Real history is God moving in a direction this way to accomplish his plan and devil moving down through history this way to stop it. That's all history is. That's all. Everything that goes on in history will come down to those two things. It's a bigger picture than most people see. And I learned that down through history that there are seven places in history where God changed his garments. What do I mean by that? He dressed one way to suggest something. So he changes the dressings that he wears and what he's doing in his way so we can't track him. But here's the key. The face is always the same. You could put on whatever garment you want, but if I got a good look at your face, I'd know who you are. And it's the key is the fact that down through history, he will, he will change garments number of times when it needed to be done. We're going to talk. I'm going to give you those. But the face is always the same. And that's how you find out who he is. You find out his way and find out what street he's on. And down through history, he has changed garments to disguise his face. So somebody just generally looking at it, not paying attention, would never see it. And by that way, he masked his address, his way, his street. Now, these seven garment changes down through history uh, uh, is incredible. The first one would be from Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, uh, 2 to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. That's a big chunk. But the devil operated in that time frame with the garment of all the other nations. We know that from Genesis to Second uh, Chronicles, we find the five stages of God developing the nation of Israel. We find the formation early in Genesis. We find the calling out in Exodus. We find the establishment in First Samuel. We find the uh, demise over there after Solomon. And then we find uh, the captivity in Second Chronicles chapter 36. And the devil was wearing the garments at that point of the world powers. We have the Egyptians. We have the Babylonians. We have the Assyrians, we have the, we have the Hittites, we have the Philistines, we have the Jebusites. Those are all nations by which he controlled and he wore the garments of those king nations for one purpose. That was to stop God establishing the nation of Israel. 
The second garment change was when Israel goes into captivity. The Bible clearly tells us that now we enter into the times of the Gentiles. So he changes clothes here, changes garments. Now he's going to now he's going to run it through the Gentile nations that are listed in Daniel chapter 2 for you, and he's going to bring it up to a modern time. Israel now is out of the picture temporarily, and now the Gentiles are running the world. Where in the Old Testament, Israel was running the world, and the Gentiles were fighting against it. Here, Israel is out of the picture temporarily, Romans 9 and Romans 11. And now God is, the devil is running it uh, th- clearly through the Gentile nations without any interference. And now he's setting up word domination. Now this garment is working through this nation to get him the third garment change, and that'll be the first coming of Christ. He orchestrated through his garment change, the second one, to get the world powers where he wanted them. And now at the first coming of Christ, he's got Rome in power, and Rome is going to be the key for him. And now Rome is in power. And he's used the Roman Empire. The nation of Israel is in the captivity. You have a remnant that went back in Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's where Christ finds the Jews when he shows up at the first coming. But now he's wearing the garments of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And he's completely taken over what's left of the nation of Israel and holds them under bondage through Rome. Oh, it's incredible. Well, you know what happens. Christ gets crucified. The whole thing takes place in the book of Acts. And then we find uh, the fourth garment change. Because once the church age comes into effect, he can't no more wear the garments of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now the church age, he's got a, he's, he really gets dressed for this occasion. And this will bring us up to around 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea before when Constantine puts an end to the pagan Roman Empire and establishes the Roman Catholic Church. Now we see that his church fully takes a definite form. Back here, it's just been lucid. It's been through Baal worship on whatever form the nations in their primitive state wanted it. Uh Uh-uh. Now he's ratcheted down the focus. We have a laser focus point of where this church starts called the Roman Catholicism. And ah, during the same time, here it comes. Here comes your new Bibles popping up. Here comes Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Here comes the Douay Reims. And in time, here comes your RSV, ASV, NIV, and the New King James Bible. All right out of that mess right here. So now he changes garments the fourth time, and now he's a church. Now he speaks ex cathedra. Now he's built a religion that he's going to tell the people to join it, don't read your Bible. Listen to what I tell you. The man in charge here speaks instead of God. And when you do read in the Bible, you read or you talk to some crazy Baptist and he tells you that this is what the Bible says and you bring it to us and say, hey, you teach this in the church and the Bible teaches this, which do I follow? You're going to tell them you always follow what the church teaches because the church is superior to God in the Bible because it's Christ's church. And God has put the leaders up and the leaders speak for God. So don't listen to that crazy Baptist preacher. Don't listen to those books you read. Don't listen to that internet. Let me tell you something. You got a church that'll do everything for you and tell you everything you got to do. You, all you got to do is just 
two things. One, never leave it. Two, raise your kids in it. What a great plan that is. Well, that all kind of went to pieces in 1560 with Martin Luther and the Reformation. So now we find his fifth garment change. You see, in the, four, in the, in the first one, he took on the form of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, all of, the, all of those men down there that represented. In the second one, when the times of the Gentiles, then he, he took on the form in, of, a, of the garment of the nations. When the fourth one came in, the church age, then he took on the, the Pope's outfit. And when the Reformation takes place, the Roman Catholic Church takes a big hit. And she just gets kicked six ways from Sunday. And now Roman Catholic Church lost its power. Now, make a long story short, God is moving out and going out around the world with the King James Bible and the Bible believers in Rome who are suppressing all that is really in a mess. So now he changes clothes again. And this is where we'll find in history, if you want to study it, what is called the Oxford Movement. The Oxford Movement was Roman Catholic Jesuit priests enrolling in Protestant seminaries graduating from those Protestant seminaries, taking a Protestant church, and those Protestant churches are the churches that came out of Rome, Presbyterian, Anglican, uh, Episcopalian, Greek Orthodox, all of those churches, a little bit later on the Methodist, uh, they all come out of, out of Rome, and they come out during the Reformation. So he wants them back. So now he takes off his priest garment, and he puts on his Protestant clergyman clothes. And these guys in the next 200 years infiltrate these Protestant churches and 150 years after the Reformation, they are dead and they're right back to Rome again. Then the sixth one. The sixth one starts about 1880, 1917 and up to about 1948 in the times that we're living in now. And this is crawled in history, the Zionist movement. Now we find that the great over 300, 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about God restoring the nation of Israel, now we find the prophecies beginning to be fulfilled where God calls them back over hundreds of times in the Old Testament. We find this called in history the Zionist movement. We find guys like Theodore Herzl and guys like uh, Wiesmann who uh, was gaining sympathy around the world who wrote papers on the fact that Israel has no land and has no nation and gained the sympathy. And it began the movement of the Zionist movement. And now to counter that, he changes clothes the sixth time. You know, I don't know why people can't see things like this. To me, I don't know. It's the easiest thing in the world. Because now in, church four, in number four, church age, he put on the disguise of a Roman Catholic church. In the Reformation, he put on the garb and the garment of a Protestant clergyman. Here in the Zionist movement, he puts on the garment of Muhammad. Did you ever ask yourself why? I mean, the Muslims have been around since 570. I don't think it got really kicked off to about 1600 or 600. But they've been around for a while. Did you ever wonder why they never became a worldwide threat till about 40 years ago? You ever ask yourself that? 
I mean, they've been, most of the time up to that point, they were just fighting among themselves and killing themselves with all the different factions. And the British were over there for many years, and they mandated it, and, you know, they tried to keep the peace, but they fought back and forth with each other. Uh, but they never, they never became a worldwide threat. You didn't hear of jihad then. Uh, there was no terrorist bombings or uprisings anywhere in the world in Western civilization. Why did it only happen about 40 years ago? Anybody, anybody ever think that through? Why did you have all this time from 570 or 600 where they're just nomads out there going and doing their little deal, you know, going from Oasis to Avis, eating dates and, uh, you know, riding camels, you know, and, 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 suddenly, and suddenly 40 years ago, they suddenly became a world threat, a world power. They suddenly talk about jihad and now they want to kill every Westerner in the world. Why is that? Don't you ask yourself those questions? I'll tell you why. Because in the church age, he put on the robe garments of a priest. In the Reformation, he put on the garments of a, a Protestant clergyman. And in the Zionist movement, knowing where it was going to go, with Israel getting back in the land, I mean, God called him out in 1917. He put him back in the land in 1948. And now we're only a half step away from the rapture of the church, and they're getting the land back. You know what he did? You know why he put on a Muslim garb? Because he's going to use the Muslim to stop him. Man. And then the final garment change is yet to come. But that'll take place at the rapture when we get into the tribulation period. And this is where he'll put on the garment of the man of sin, the Antichrist. And he will change clothes now for the final time and become God to a godless world left behind after the rapture of the church. And for this, you'll want to see 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, book of James, book of Jude, and uh, all kinds of places in the Old Testament. Now, he changes all these clothes, but if you're paying attention and you have a King James 1611 authorized version, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because he can put on the garments, listen to me, but his face never changes. Got to know what you're looking for. Now, in the New Testament, the two greatest chapters on the devil be Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. You put Job chapter 40 and 41 together with Revelation chapter 12 and 13, and you got the street address, the phone number, the way. You got his email address. You got his footprints, his fingerprints, and his DNA. The Bible will lay out for you exactly his way and where he's at on every street corner in Kansas City or any city in this country. And they missed it because of two things, wise in their own conceits and the vomit they've been chowing down for 25, 30 years. And the third thing is they're stupid. <laughs> Again, there is more information in the Bible on the devil than any other person outside the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you something. I've never given to this before, but I guess it's time. Now, in your Bible, you have a rule we follow and a number of rules we follow in Bible study called the law of first mention. The law of first mention means this. The first time you find something in the Bible, it will always be significant. The first time you find a word, a phrase, a term, it'll always be significant. And God will use that to define for you where you're going with it the rest of the time. And it'll certainly put it together for you. Now, I must tell you before I go any farther with this, in the 
scholarly world, what I just told you was a joke. They laugh at the law of first mention. In their little groups, their little classes, they'll ridicule it. Talks about us hayseed, Bible thumpers, hillbilly preachers that haven't been schooled in a higher art of learning and have to, you know, rely on stupid little stuff like the law of first mention. Amen. Yes, Amen. That's right. And they would talk that way right up till they'd show up on a Thursday night. <laughs> then I would show you what skinny little legs he really has. Seven names in the Bible for the devil. And each time you find it the first time, it will define a different part and a different way that puts the whole concept together for you. The first time you find the word serpent in the Bible will be Genesis chapter 3. From that point on, when you find the word serpent, the context will be the attack on the New Testament church, age Christianity, or attack on God's people. Uh, You'll find in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, he tells you, going back to uh, Adam and Eve, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtly, so he will will beguile the church in, in its simplicity. The word serpent is how he attacks in the church age. He camouflages himself. He blends in. Eve is the picture. Adam and Eve were put down in the garden. Eve's a type of the church. Adam's a type of Christ. When the devil attacked, Adam wasn't home. Picture the church age. He's back up in heaven. When he came to Eve, he did exactly what they do to you. He said to Eve, Yea, hath God said... And then read it, he changed what God said. And yet he looked just like Christ. He blended in. I mean, he's got a church. Bible says he has pastors. It's no, it's no great thing that his, his, his unclean spirits are transformed into ministers of righteousness. And he shows up and he says, yea, hath God said. And he imitates both the, devil, both the devil and Christ are called God. They're both called light. They're both called Christ. They're both called lions. They both call, come on white horses. They both are called king. They both are called princes. They both have a bride and they both have a church and they both have a Bible. He just blends in. And the first time you find the word serpent, it shows you how he's going to attack. You know, snakes are, uh, you know, to this, to this day, if a woman is a woman, I mean, you find some examples to it, but not many. A woman's scared to death of a snake. Uh, you know, and we get the idea, and you see it all the pictures. In all the pictures are Roman Catholic concoctions, you know, uh, that Eve's standing there with a tree, with apples on it and a snake wrapped around the thing. And that becomes a standard idea of what really happened in the garden. Let me ask you something. Let me tell you something. I'm not going to ask you anything. Let me tell you something. There was no apple tree. I mean, there was, but that wasn't the one. There wasn't a, there wasn't a snake up in the tree or on the ground. 
that serpent shows you why he's called a serpent. It shows you, if you study Job 12, the animals, the devil is just going to be like a serpent. You know what a snake does? A snake will stay motionless for 10, 12 hours waiting for something to come through that it can eat. You can't even see it there. You ever notice how you try to pick a copperhead out in the woods or a rattlesnake, unless you really got a trained eye, you'll step on it before you ever see it. That's why he used the serpent. It blends in, it camouflages, and before you know it, you've been bit. As my old grandmother used to say, not the one who couldn't cook. Old grandmother used to say, it wasn't the apple in the tree that was the problem. It was the pear on the ground. <laughs> now, the second time, or the second thing, the first time you word, find the word Satan. You know where that's at? It's in First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. That's the first time it shows up. And there it's clearly, for every time you're going to find the word Satan, it's going to be looked linked closely to his attack on the nation of Israel. That's what he does in First Chronicles 21.1. He attacks Israel. Satan means adversary. It means accuser. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, he shows up at the throne of God accusing Job. And Job is a type of the nation of Israel. He's in the land of us. That's where the Jews are going to be. There's 38... Uh, there's, uh, uh, 42 chapters in the book of Job, 42 months in the great tribulation period. Job gets persecuted on the ground seven days, just like the Jew gets persecuted on the ground for seven years. I mean, everything is a perfect picture of that thing. So you see him, first time he shows up and he's called Satan, it's going to align him up to the adversary, the accuser. Now, let me just say this to you. Side note. Based on these passages, and then you go over to Revelation chapter 9 and Revelation chapter 11. Uh, any, I want to tell you this, because you're going to bump into it. It's all over the internet. We even get some of the clowns on our, on our, uh, on our uh, broadcast on Sunday morning. Based on this passage and Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 9 and 11, any man today saved or lost who, uh, who stand, takes a stand against the Jew and speaks against the nation of Israel and calls them uh, anything other than what the Bible calls them, you mark it down. He will be satanic. I mean, it's just that simple, either directly or indirectly. And as I said, the Internet's full of them. You find it all the time. The heresies out there are all over the place. And there's guys who actually believe that God is finished with the nation of Israel. And there's just some terrible, they don't have a clue about the Bible. And I forget all that. I'm telling you right now, that is based on 1 Chronicles 21.1. Revelation chapter 12 tells you that the devil hates the nation of Israel. And he enlists idiots like this to put out that vomit, and it's satanic, just so you know that. Now, the third time it finds up, in the first time is you find the word devil, and that'll be Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And when you find the word devil the first time, it'll be attack on Christ, and the devil comes as the tempter. And he attempts Christ in three ways. Of course, we know that. Most people don't put it together and figure it out, but the three things that he tries to get him to do are all connected with the second coming of Christ that Christ will do. And it's a great story and a picture for you and for me because it shows you that when the devil wants to tempt us, he'll tempt us many times to do the right thing at the wrong time. Now, the fourth one, 
Fourth time, uh, the fourth thing is, is you find the word dragon the first time. That's in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 13. First time you find it. And it's connected with a dragon gate. The dragon gate was down by the dung gate down at the south end of Jerusalem, which led to Gehenna, which is a type of hell, the trash dump that was always burning, and it's a picture of the lake of fire. So when you go to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, Revelation 12, 3, Revelation 13, 1, and of course, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, you find the dragon put in the bottomless pit, the lake of fire. These are all composites that put him together to show you his street and his way. Now, the word Lucifer, this will be our fifth one. First time you find the word Lucifer, we found in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Lucifer means lux pharaoh, bright shining. He's called the son of the morning, never the morning star. That's the NIV giving the honor and glory to Christ to the devil. And it, it shows us the position before his fall called the son of the morning. We know from Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 that originally there was five cherubs in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. You have a picture of the throne of God that tells you there's a cherub on each around that throne, and there was one at one time that was over the throne, the fifth cherub that covered it, and he fell. Gives you that dimension. The first time you're going to find son of perdition in the Bible, this will be number six, by the way, <clears throat> will be in John 17, 12, and it'll be a reference to Judas Iscariot. Three great keys in your Bible on his street of who he is, will be John 17, 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and Revelation chapter 17, 11. The only three times you find in your Bible, son of perdition. But it starts with John 17, 12. And it shows you the connection to, to Judas and the Antichrist. It gives whole new light on the fact in John 6, 70, that says, have I not Jesus himself speaking, saying, have I not chosen you 12, and one of you, speaking of Judas, is a devil. And in your NIV, coming to the rescue, on John 6, 70, in the footnote, it tells you that he really wasn't a devil. He was just opposing Christ. Making Jesus a liar. Jesus didn't say, have I not chosen you 12 or one of you is opposing me, acting like the devil? <laughs> he said, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? How do you get anything out of that but what it says? Devil's got to mask those things, and he'll use God's men to do it. Now, the seventh one. First time you find the phrase, God of this world, it'll be 2 Corinthians 4, 4. It says, whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And here we find that uh, this is where we see that his main job through religion is to blind the world. I gave you 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12, 13, and 14 a little while ago. It says again, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. There he is his street, there he is his way, laid out through history, based on Job 40, Job 40, 41, just studying elephants and whirlpools. (laughs) 
And it's an incredible concept. Now, the slothful man who was a sluggard when it comes to the Bible, saved or lost, he'll never get any of this. One, he won't learn from history. Two, he won't learn from his own mistakes because he's unteachable. And most of all, he won't learn because he's wise in his own conceit. Your Bible, now now here at our church, somebody said a while back, I heard him talk about us, and they said that, uh, uh, well, we're a King James only a church. Uh, That's only a half truth. Uh, I I don't accept the term, we're only a King James uh, only church, though I like the term. I'd rather say it that we are an established truth church. The truth we had has been established. It's been established through history and the King James Bible, but it's established truth. Your Bible will be your final authority in all things of faith and practice. You can rest assured in this world where there's nothing certain, there's nothing perfect, there's nothing good, there's nothing that it's worth anything. You have something that is an absolute standard that is worth everything, and you have, believe it or not, it's a sure thing, but you have bet your soul on it. And I'm here to tell you that that Bible you got sitting in your lap is the inspired, complete, preserved, perfect Word of God without any errors in it. When I talk about being perfect, which is a big debate today, and I love to watch these little guys talk about what is perfect. It isn't perfect according to your standards, little man. It's perfect to what God calls perfect. You better figure that one out. God has his own definition of perfect, and it isn't yours. I heard guys say, well, I believe it's the best. Not only is it the best, but it's the only one. I have guys said, well, you know what? Someday there could be another Bible come along. And, yeah, making a statement like that just shows how inept you are when it comes to history in the Bible and why God gave you that one in the first place. Somebody said, well, it could be replaced someday. No, you're wrong. You will be replaced, but the book will stand. It's a book written, established by God, preserved through his New Testament church. Then in the final Form will be superior to any Greek or Hebrew or any manuscripts or any scholarship. Without a doubt, to anybody who loves God and His Word above Himself, it is the established truth of God to His people. God could never judge you and hold you accountable at the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne if He ever gave you an imperfect book. Because to get out of going to hell or get out of losing your rewards, you just would point out to the imperfections and that would get you off. How stupid can you be? And this book, as established truth, will lay out where to find Christ and the truth. And it will all show you exactly what street the lion is on and show you clearly his way versus God's way. And the devil hates it. And will do everything in his power to replace it with his Bible, to hide his way and his street, and to mask himself that pastors, churches, and Christianity in these last days, with his last garment change, are blinded. The most unbelievable thing in a practical, if it's true, and it is true, is the devil's Bible preached in God's churches to God's people by God's pastors. And if I'm wrong, then 6,000 years of history is wrong. It's unbelievable. 
But not so, I guess, because, again, going back to the first attack by the serpent to the church, Genesis 3, he simply said, Yea, hath God said. And then changed what he said. And Evie baby jumped into that thing just, you know, you know what shows about, the Bible's a great book to show human nature. Not only did the devil get the words out of his mouth, yea, hath God said, and then he changed what God said. Evie baby jumps in the discussion and she adds to what God said. And I'm telling you this, it's a great picture because when satanic influences are in our lives, and we're not controlled by God, I'm going to tell you something right now. Amen. That old nature of yours is going to do want to do one thing. It's the same thing that it's the original sin. You see, people think the original sin was Adam and Eve. Oh, no. Adam and Eve is just a collateral damage of the original sin. The original sin took place way before that that is in the heart of every man if you don't tame it through the Word of God, and it's simply this. I will be like the most high God. I will ascend my throne, my car, my house, my boat, my motorcycle, my this, my that, my golf clubs. I will exalt all my things above the stars of God. That's the original sin. And we all have that in us. Every one of us in that old sin nature. Every one of us. Every one of us have within us the fact that we want to be something special. And there ain't nothing wrong with being something special as long as you're something special for God. Because God will take you and make you something special. You know, yesterday in in Institute, I was reading, we were coming through the seven stages of spiritual growth, and I just happened to read this verse. And I had never seen this before. And it was one of Paul's prison epistles. It was in Philemon. In fact, turn over to the book of Philemon. I want to show you this. I told him this would be a great devotion. So if somebody used this last night, that's where they got it. Nothing wrong with that. I steal stuff all the time, man. Amen. Somebody says, are you really proud of the fact that you steal stuff from other people when it comes to the Bible? And I said, no, I'm just proud of the fact that when I finally get it, I teach it better than they did. <laughs> Look at Philemon chapter 1. Okay, good point. It's a test. You all passed. It's a test. Look at verse 1. Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, and the Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I told him yesterday. You go back to the Old Testament, it talks about the strongholds in our lives. And it talks about how that many of you at some point in your life had a stronghold in your life. Many people that try to come to church here and try to get, they can't get out of it because of such a stronghold. And I told him, I said, I told him yesterday, I said, the greatest thing you ever saw in your life is that verses. And I had never seen it before. It just kind of jumped out at me when I was reading it. And he says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You're either going to be held in a stronghold of the world and a prisoner of the world, or you're going to be held in the stronghold of Jesus Christ as his prisoner. Amen. 
and you get to choose. A prisoner doesn't get to say where he goes. He didn't get to decide when he's going to eat. He didn't get to decide when he gets outside. He didn't get to decide anything. He's a prisoner. He has no rights. And you know what? When you put the stronghold of the world in your life, like Samson last week when we talked about, you don't have any, you don't dictate where you go. Your flesh drives you everywhere you go. And at time, after yielding to that flesh and putting those things in your life, those things become your stronghold. And they will guide and direct your life to destruction. On the other hand, when you get into the Word of God and you get saved and you make Jesus Christ Lord of your life and you start building those things that he wants you to build, then you become his prisoner. He becomes your stronghold. And where the one will lead you to destruction, the other will lead you to eternal glory. Where the one will wreck and ruin everything in your life, the one will give you the desires of your heart and bless you in every way you can. But you get to decide which stronghold you're going to have. The world's or the Lord Jesus. And Paul said, for me, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. I, I don't have any say where I go. I don't have any say of what I do. I'm a prisoner. He's locked in that stronghold of Christ dictating everything in his life. That's the key. Well, we'll hold up there.